I'd like to read a couple of verses from Psalm 116 as we go to prayer this morning. I love the Lord because he hears my voice and my supplications, because he has inclined his ear to me. Therefore, I shall call upon him as long as I live. Father, we do call upon you this morning because you are faithful and true. And Father, one day we will stand in your presence to experience the blessing and the joy of knowing you in a way that in this world we cannot know you. We're thankful for the Spirit of God, however, who witnesses with our spirit that we are the children of God. And for the Word of God, which tells us who you are and describes your character and your attributes and helps us to understand how you interact with us here in this life. Lord, I pray that you will deepen our commitment and our consecration to you, that we will walk with you by faith, and we will sense the reality of what you've called us to do each and every day. Each day is a new ministry for each of us, and I pray that we will allow you to flow through us to touch other lives. Father, I thank you for the ministry of Samuel, this man that we have been studying, and how you worked through, through him and accomplished your purpose there in Israel. And as we study his life and the life of Saul, we ask you to give instruction and understanding. Lord, bless as your word is proclaimed here on these premises this day and through the city of Reading and around the world. And we'll thank you for hearing and answering and drawing your people to yourself this day. In Jesus' name, amen. If you'll turn to the book of 1 Samuel, chapter 9. I'd like to begin with verse 22. Then Samuel took Saul and his servant and brought them into the hall and gave them a place at the head of those who were invited, who were about 30 men. And Samuel said to the cook, Bring the portion that I gave you, concerning which I said to you, set it aside. Then the cook took took up the leg with what was on it and set it before Saul. And Samuel said, Here is what has been reserved. Set it, set it before you and eat, because it has been kept for you until the appointed time, since I said I have invited the people. So Saul ate with Samuel that day. When they came down from the high place to the city, Samuel spoke with Saul on the roof. And they arose early, and it came about at daybreak that Samuel called to Saul on the roof, saying, Get up, that I may send you away. So Saul arose. Both he and Samuel went out into the street. As they were going down to the edge of the city, Samuel said to Saul, Say to the servant that he might go ahead of us and pass on, but you remain standing now that I may proclaim the word of God to you. We're in that part of 1 Samuel where God has chosen to allow Israel to have <clears throat> the king that they have demanded. And you remember that when uh, Samuel did not want to go through with this, God said to Samuel, it is not really you, Samuel, that they are rejecting. It is me. And so we're at this point now where God has brought Saul to Samuel, and, and Samuel has encountered him and is in the process of proclaiming to him that he is to be Israel's first king. Back in verse 13 of the, uh, of the same chapter, we discover that uh, when Saul and his servant first arrived outside of Ramah, they came to a well. 
and they wanted to know where Samuel was, so they came to the ladies of the well and they asked where Samuel was, and the ladies gave directions. And what is interesting, as we read that particular verse, the ladies couched their response in such a way that it was obvious to them that there was a sacrifice that was <coughs> impending and that it was a sacrifice to be made involving only, only an alim a limited group. It wasn't like everybody was coming together to worship and have this great sacrifice, but only a limited group. And the ladies didn't explain that that was unusual, but it is a bit of a different concept here. As we read this passage, or as we read this passage uh, just now, it appears evident that the sacrifice and the meal had been planned by Samuel probably within just the last 24 hours before Saul showed up. And it was planned specifically to honor Saul because God had spoken to, to, to Samuel. You may remember from last Sunday if you're here. God had said to Samuel, tomorrow about this time, I'm going to bring you the man that you're going to anoint uh, as king over Israel. Well, Samuel had never met Saul before, and so he didn't know who he was looking for, but it seems that from that moment, he planned this celebration, this sacrifice and this celebration, this preferment that would take place specifically for the purpose of honoring this man, whoever it would be. Well, he has now been introduced. Saul has introduced himself. Samuel has introduced himself to Saul. We noted last week then when Saul first met Samuel, he said to Samuel, uh, could you tell us where the, the prophet is that lives here? And of course, he didn't know who Samuel was. And I uh, tried to point out the fact that given the fact that Gibeah, where Saul lived, Gibeah is right here, just north of Jerusalem. And Ramah is just a little bit further over this, up, up this way, just a little bit further to the north. It's not, there is a Ramah over here too, but this isn't the Ramah where Samuel lived. One of the things that, I think I've pointed this out before, one of the things that's a little bit frustrating about studying Bible geography is that a lot of places are named for features, like hills, high places, and so forth. And, and so you have repeated same names through the country. Sometimes there's three towns in the same country with the same name. And so you have to say, like Bethlehem of Judea, if you're referring to that Bethlehem, rather than the Bethlehem that was up north in Galilee, which was a different Bethlehem, and obviously not the Bethlehem in which Jesus was born, although it would have been a whole lot closer <laughs> to Nazareth than Bethlehem south of Jerusalem. But, of course, it wouldn't have fulfilled the prophecy. So there was more than one Ramah. This is not the Ramah where Samuel was. That was very, very close up here to the north of Gibeah. If you go to Jerusalem today and you take the highway north out of Jerusalem, it's just outside Jerusalem today, modern Jerusalem, that you will see Gibeah. Gibeah rises up to the right of the highway, thus to the east of the highway, and on the top of it it's, is, is, a, is a palace. It's crowned today with a palace, but the palace is only half built because it was a palace that King Hussein of Jordan was building for himself before the 1967 war in which, of course, the West Bank and Jerusalem and everything was occupied by Israel and Jordan was kicked back over to the other side of the Jordan River. Uh, so he was going to build a palace for himself in what is today, of course, the West Bank. But he was, uh, it was not finished. But it's very obvious where Gibeah is because you see that palace sitting there today. He has gone to this town of Ramah and Samuel, when he met him at the gateway, immediately said to him, come with me to the high place. We are going to have a sacrifice. I mean, Saul has just been introduced to Samuel, and suddenly he's dragging him up the hill to take part in this particular 
sacrifice and to take him to, the, the scripture says, a hall. Uh, the, the Hebrew word here is often translated hall. It's a room, a small room in a sanctuary that apparently was built near the altar where the sacrifice was made on the hill next to Ramah, which was called the high place. The word high place is used all the time in scripture because that's where not only the Philistines or the Canaanites made their sacrifices, that's also where the Israelites made their sacrifices. After the sacrifice was made, the portions of the sacrificial animal were supposed to be consumed by the sacrificers and they were to be brought to the hall for that particular purpose. So what we see here is a sacrifice taking place and there we were told that 30 men were part of this meal. So there are about 30 individuals out here. There's Saul and his servant. There's Samuel. And they do this sacrifice. Then the, the animal is prepared and brought into the hall. Saul and his servant were seated in the preferred place. They were put in the seats of honor, which of course was amazing to Saul. He had never been in such a place before in his life. And of course he didn't know anybody in the room except his servant. So he's being given this place of honor by this vaunted uh, prophet and Shaphat in Israel. And so you, you can just see his mind is going, woo, 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 you know, what is going on here? <laughs> Have I stepped off of the planet? Of course, in those days, they never had any concept of the planet or of stepping off of it, but he, he probably thought things were a bit out of the world as far as he understood. Samuel then commands the cook. <laughs> That's an interesting word. The Hebrew word there is tabak. And he, he commands this cook to bring the special piece of the sacrifice that's been prefer, prepared for preferment here. What is interesting is that the word here translated cook is nowhere else in the scripture translated cook. It is only here translated cook. The root of the word, or I should say the most frequent translation of the word is guard. And the root of the word means to slaughter. And so we're probably, what we're doing here is looking at the Levite who assisted Samuel in the sacrifice, helped to officiate over the sacrifice. And so he was the one given responsibility, seeing to it that the, that the sacrificed animal was brought in, properly prepared and everything. So he's not really a cook in a sense of being a chef. But he is simply the man who oversaw the preparation of the animal for its uh, presentation in the hall. The Levite brought the leg portion that was generally given to the priest himself as the special part of the animal to be given to Saul. Now Samuel could do that because Samuel was this. He was doing that because he was demonstrating to these people and to Saul himself that God has chosen you to be prince in Israel. What is interesting is Saul's response. He ate the portion given to him. By actually eating the portion given to him, he was indicating that he accepted the honor that was being put upon him. Whether he really understood it, I think he was bewildered. I think he didn't really understand at all what was really happening here, but he was going along with the program because this, this venerable priest and shofat and uh, hero of Israel was saying this was what he should do. Scripture tells us that when this was over with, that they went down to the city of Ramah, down the hill. It does, the city is not named, but Ramah is where Samuel lived. And Samuel took Saul and put him on the roof. Now, most of us, when we have guests, we probably don't put them on the roof, <laughs> even though we might like to. <laughs> But in, in that part of the world, of course, <laughs> the roof was an integral part of the house. 
and it was the part of the house where many things took place. Often the meals were eaten on the roof. Uh, food was cooked on the roof. Uh, generally, especially in the warm part of the year, the family slept on the roof. So this was not, they were, he wasn't being shoved off into the corner and saying, you know, you go up there because you're not worthy to sleep in the house. He was actually being given a good place to sleep up on the roof of the house. Think of the fresh air. A lot more of it up there, I'm sure. Our decks today that we have. Sleeping on the deck. Do you do that a lot? <laughs> <laughs> At daybreak, Samuel went up to the roof and awakened Saul and told him that he'd better be on his way. I think he served him a meal, even though it's not specified there, but certainly he would have done that as a matter of hospitality. And then he escorted him to the city gate. Now, Ramah was not a large town, so it wasn't a long walk. We need to understand that most of these towns in Israel at that time were nothing more than a few acres in size. They were very small towns. Even Jerusalem, which would become the city of David, at the time that David captured it was probably no more than 10 to 12 acres. Very small, much smaller than it is today. Today, if you go to the city of Jerusalem, you go to the old city, which is walled in by the, the upper part of the walls, or the Turkish walls that were built by Suleiman the Magnificent in the 16th century. The lower part are walls that go back to uh, Herod's time and so forth. But um, if, you, if you go inside that, you're looking at about 640 acres. It's about a square mile inside that uh, particular wall. But of course, the modern city of Jerusalem just sprawls everywhere. It's, uh, it's a much larger city than... Uh, Imagine David walking into the modern city and saying, whoa, what is this, you know? <laughs> Nothing like anything he understood. Even, even the Turkish city he would not have comprehended. Far larger than he would have uh, considered. He escorted him to the gate, and then he stopped, and he said, would you send your servant on down the road, and, but I want you to remain behind, because I want you to hear what the Lord has to say to you. Samuel sent his servant on down. I think for Saul, all that was happening was pretty amazing to him. I don't think he had ever had any visions of grandeur before. <laughs> he was just a commoner uh, living out in the countryside, chasing donkeys at the time that uh, he ran into Samuel. And this whole encounter to Samuel must have been like a dream to him. The fastest 24 hours in his life. Whew what had happened to him. I, it just didn't compute yet in his mind. He had very hesitatingly come to Samuel in the first place. He only came because his servant said, let's go to Samuel. He lives nearby here, and he'll tell us where the donkeys are. And, and the only reason he came was to find out where are my lost donkeys. He had no other concept in his mind at all. And yet, in the space of less than 24 hours, he had found himself the guest of honor at a sacrificial banquet attended by people, none of whom that he knew, except his servant. He was being hosted by Samuel the prophet in his own house. That would be sort of like sleeping in the White House, uh, in, a, in a way, even though there was no central government in those days, and Samuel was not king of Israel, but he was certainly the most famous man in all of Israel at that particular moment, even though Saul wasn't terribly acquainted with him. And, and he was then chosen leader by at least Samuel's proclamation, all that was yet lacking was an official anointing of Saul by a priest as prince in Israel. Well, let's read into the 10th chapter, 1 Samuel chapter 10. Then Samuel took the flask of oil, poured it on his head, and kissed him, and said, Has not the Lord anointed you a ruler over his inheritance? When you go from me today, 
you will find two men close to Rachel's tomb in the territory of Benjamin at Zelzak. And they will say to you, the donkeys which you went to look for have been found. Behold, now your father has ceased to be concerned about the donkeys and is anxious for you, saying, what shall I do about my son? Then you will go further from there, and you will come as far as the oak of Tabor. And there three men going up to God at Bethel will meet you, one carrying three kids, another carrying three loaves of bread, and another carrying a jug of wine. And they will greet you and will give you two loaves of bread, which you will accept from their hand. Afterwards, you will come to the hill of God, where the Philistine garrison is. And it shall be as soon as you have come there to the city, that you will meet a group of prophets coming down from the high place with harp, tambourine, flute, and lyre before them. And they'll be prophesying. Then the Spirit of the Lord will come upon you mightily, and you shall prophesy with them and be changed into another man. And it shall be when these signs come to you, do for yourself what the occasion requires, for God is with you. And you shall go down before me to Gilgal. Behold, I will come down to you to offer burnt offerings and sacrifice peace offerings. You shall wait seven days until I come to you and show you what you should do. No one had ever been, uh, had ever been anointed king in Israel before. <coughs> so Samuel is setting a precedent here. Everything he does is the first. It reminds me of the history of this country when George Washington was elected president of the United States. Everything he did was setting a precedent. He was the very first president of the country. And so, you know, inauguration, uh, messages that he brought to the nation, uh, where he lived, all, everything <laughs> was a precedent to be established. And fortunately, we had a, a great man to set those precedents. And thus we have survived. But no one had ever been anointed king in Israel. So Sammy would have had to think, now, what oil should I use to, to anoint this man king? Well, prince, actually, is the word there. We don't know for sure because the scripture doesn't say what oil he used. But I think the most likely formula that he used for the oil to anoint the king was the anointing oil that God had said would be used for the anointing of the ark, the anointing of the tabernacle, and for the anointing of the priest, the consecrated anointing oil. Why would he use that? Because Saul was being consecrated by God as king over his people. He was being anointed as prince, and therefore he was a holy leader of Israel. That was God's intent anyway. And so it was logical that he would use this anointing oil. And if you want to look up the formula, it's in the 30th chapter of Exodus and tells us about the different uh, commodities were mixed into the olive oil to make the consecration oil. Well, not even Saul's servant was to witness this anointing. It was Samuel anointing Saul. Nobody else around. Why? I think this was done so that Saul would know that God alone had chosen him. And it was to be God's approbation that he sought, not that of people, not that of Israel. You read through the course of history, you even read through the course of Scripture and the kings there, and you discover they're always doing things for the sake of people's approval. And, of course, all we have to do is think about our current situation today, and we know that our leaders seek for approval more than they seek anything else, uh, human approval for what they do. But he is saying here 
that God's approval is what you need, not human approval. God is witness to this anointing, and that's all the audience you need. Samuel then kissed Saul. It was a symbol of homage by the man who was Shaphat and priest in Israel, homage to the prince that has now been anointed as ruler over Israel. Samuel's words that are written at the end of verse 1 there of chapter 10, has not the Lord anointed you a ruler over his kingdom, I think were spoken as a warning, spoken as a warning to Saul. God has anointed you as king over his inheritance, his inheritance. So God was, through Samuel, saying to Saul, Israel belongs to God, not to you. Not to you, Saul. Belongs to God. Because you look at the history of monarchies, kings always considered the kingdoms to be theirs. This is my personal property. It's like Louis XIV in, uh, in France, who I'm, I'm, of course, picking a bit of an extreme person here, but, but he considered himself to be the sun king, meaning S-U-N, meaning that as the sun shines in the earth and brings life, so I shine on France and am the source of this country's existence. Hmm. He was a very humble man. <laughs> everybody agreed with him. Yeah, right. <laughs> they did. Uh, he, was a, he was a character. But God was saying, no, this is not true. Like the pagan kings who view their kingdom as their own fief, this is not yours. This is mine. And you are simply to be a wise and gentle caretaker of my people. He was not to become the selfish tyrant that was so true of most of the kingdoms of the world at that time. His position as king in Israel was not for his sake, not for the sake of Saul, but for the sake of God's people. When you think about that for a while, how many leaders consider their position to be a right, their position to be for their sake? Many have argued that the best form of government <clears throat> that the world could have or any nation could have is a benevolent autocracy where one man rules and he, when he speaks, it happens. But preceding the word autocracy is benevolent. <laughs> Means that he rules not for his sake, but for the sake of the people. Which is, of course, what God is. God is a benevolent autocrat. <laughs> God is all sovereign, but he rules for the, on behalf of his creation. And the problem with benevolent autocracy is you never can find a benevolent autocrat. Now, the Chinese have tried that, and uh, they've viewed it that way often, but uh, their autocracy very quickly degenerated into tyranny. And that's why they had so many revolutions and changes of dynasties down through the history of China and, of course, other countries as well. In that light, his primary roles were to be defender and protector of God's people. That's what his position was to be, to defend and protect the people of God under the direction of God himself. So much had happened to Saul in such a short time that his mind was, to use a modern phrase, blown. Therefore, he was going to need repeated proof that this was real, that, that what Samuel had said was true. A and so Samuel gave to him these prophecies 
three validations would occur to you, Saul, as you leave this gate today and as you proceed uh, down the road. First of all, near Rachel's tomb, two men would meet you, will meet you, and they will tell you that your donkeys have been found and they're okay, but your father's worried about you. Secondly, near the Oak of Tabor, we have no idea exactly where the Oak of Tabor is, except, of course, it mentions Bethel here, so probably somewhere in the neighborhood of Bethel, but this is the only reference to the Oak of Tabor uh, in Scripture. There, three men would meet him who were going on their way to Bethel to worship God. One of them would be carrying three kids, another would be carrying three loaves of bread, and another would be carrying a jug or a wine bag. And uh, one of the, the men who was carrying the two loaves are, is going to give, uh, the three loaves is going to give you two of them. You are to accept those two loaves of bread. And then thirdly, as they approached the, it says the high place of God. The Hebrew is Gibeath HaElohim. And it, we're told that there was a garrison of the Philistines there. Mm. As he approached this place, he was going to meet a group of prophets who were coming down the hill playing music, you know, playing on their little lutes and, and, and flutes and so forth, having a good time. And it's interesting that this group of prophets was probably the initial example of what are known in the book of the Kings as the sons of the prophets. <clears throat> this seems to be an official <laughs> designation uh, of a group of young men who were neophytes studying under a particular prophet. Probably Samuel began this whole thing, a kind of a school of the prophets. These are the sons of the prophets who are being trained in the school of the prophets and were out practicing a little bit of their prophesying here. And Samuel would encounter them. At that point, the Spirit of God, Samuel says, the Spirit of God will come upon you, Saul, and you will prophesy and you will be changed into another man. That is, you will be spirit-anointed. Well, the city in this passage is believed to be Geba, which is, is not shown on this particular map, but it was not terribly far, right about over in there. So all of these towns are fairly close together, although the tomb of Rachel is down here at Bethlehem. So if you study this carefully and you, you, you add all these pieces up here, he's supposed to go from Ramah, which is right about there, to the tomb of Rachel, which is just out of Bethlehem. And then he's supposed to meet some guys up here near Bethel and, and then run into the prophets over here at Geba. This guy is taking a very strange route home. You know, it's kind of like he's got to go from here to here. I can't hold this thing still, from here to here. So he's going like this. <laughs> you know. Instead of walking two or three miles home, he, he walks 30 miles, or rides an animal maybe, to cover those 30 miles. That, of course, is assuming <clears throat> that the city we're talking about here is Ramah, Samuel's hometown. Now, of course, that's not definitive here, but it seems most logical from the statement that Samuel lived in Ramah and that the high place was built there where sacrifices were made, it, so it all adds up. But if this Ramah or this place where Samuel met him was further south, then the rest of the trip might have made a little bit more sense. But whatever is the case, Samuel probably instructed him, now this is the route you are to take. <laughs> and he would encounter all these things. Now, why would he do that? Well, partly because if he were to walk all the way down to Bethlehem and then all the way up towards Bethel, 
Certainly Samuel isn't out there trotting ahead of him, giving people this information to meet Saul this way so that he would fulfill his own prophecy, you know, here. Saul would know that God is doing this because Samuel is an older man here. He's not out running Saul to these places and having this all set up ahead of time. To encourage him, Samuel told Saul that after all the signs had come to pass and that he was filled with the Spirit of God, he was to confidently do whatever he set his hand to do, and he would succeed. Why? Because the Spirit of God was upon him. Why would he succeed? Because the Spirit of God was upon him. Samuel's last word to Saul that day is written in verse 8. Sometime after, and we have to understand that, because Samuel or Saul did not go to these places, have these three things happen to him, these three fulfillments, and then trot right down to Gilgal. No, no, no. There's a time gap in there. So sometime after these signs had all been fulfilled, Saul was to go down to Gilgal, and he was to wait there for seven days for Samuel to come to him. Now, this actually happens later. <clears throat> Some other events will transpire between the fulfillment of these three signs and this journey down to Gilgal. Samuel was then going to come down and to offer burnt offerings and peace offerings on Saul's behalf and then tell him what to do. Now, we have to understand this. This is a trial. Samuel, Saul is being put on trial here. The seven-day wait would give him time to cool his heels. So much had happened within a short period of time here. He had been exalted from nobody to somebody to the leader in Israel. He, he would lead Israel in battle already. He would be publicly proclaimed as prince in Israel. Some would hail him and some would think he was a jerk. And uh, all of this was to transpire in this short frame of time. And so he was to go down to Gilgal after these initial whirlwind events had transpired. And he was to wait. Wait. Very hard thing to do is wait. They that wait upon the Lord shall be renewed in their strength. Be still and know that I am God. Hard for Israel as they faced Pharaoh's army on one side and the Red Sea on the other side. This was to give him time to begin to understand what it meant to be in submission to the Spirit of God. To be driven by the Spirit of God rather than by his own will, which is how he'd run his life for the first 30 or 40 years of his life was a time in which Saul was to learn patience. We've all heard the old joke. I mean, it's not really a joke, but the idea that uh, we never should pray for patience because God will send us trial because that's the only way to learn patience. The lack of patience, of course, will become a major weakness in Saul's life. Unlike us today, right? <laughs> Reading at verse 9 of chapter 10. Then it happened... When he turned his back to leave Samuel, God changed his heart. And all those signs came about on that day. When they came to the hill there, behold, a group of prophets met him. And the Spirit of God came upon him mightily, so that he prophesied among them. And it came about when all who knew him previously saw that he prophesied now with the prophets, that the people said to one another, What has happened to the son of Kish? Is Saul also among the prophets? You have to understand these questions were not spoken in an in a interrogative way. They were spoken like, so you've got to be kidding, <laughs> kind of attitude. 
And it came about when all who knew him previously saw that he prophesied now with the prophets. Oh, I already read that. Verse 12. And a man there answered and said, Now who is their, who is their father? Therefore it became a proverb, Is Saul also among the prophets? And when he had finished prophesying, he came to the high place. Now Saul's uncle said to him and his servant, Where did you go? And he said, To look for the donkeys. Look for the donkeys. When we saw that we could, they could not be found, we went to Samuel. Saul's uncle said, Please tell me what Samuel said to you. So Saul said to his uncle, He told us plainly that the donkeys had been found. But he did not tell him about the matter of the kingdom which Samuel had mentioned. The ninth verse helps us to understand the role of God in accomplishing his purposes. He had chosen Saul. God had chosen Saul to be Israel's first king. But was Saul really convinced that what Samuel had said to him was true? Or if it was true, was Saul convinced that he could actually do the job? Can I be king in Israel? Thus, when the scripture says, Saul turned his back on Samuel to leave, what was his intent? As he left Samuel to go down the hill and to go home ultimately to experience these three prophecies, what was in his mind? What was his intent? Was his intent to become the king that Samuel said he would be? I don't really think so. I think his intent was to return home. If these prophecies occurred, as Samuel said, I'll think about this. If not, I'm going to forget this whole thing as, as if it were a dream. Well, whatever was his intent, the scripture tells us that God intervened and gave him a new heart. That is, God placed in him the desire and the courage to accept the call that no one in Israel had ever received before, the call to be prince, to be king in Israel. To me, there's a strong lesson in this. When God calls someone to a particular service or ministry, he gives that person the desire and the ability to do the job. may not know it at the moment, but as we obey, as we accede to God's request, he will do this. Often we do not feel qualified to serve God. I think most men and women who are in God's service would honestly say they don't feel qualified to do the job that God has qual called them to do. And of course, without his empowerment, none of us is qualified. We cannot do the job without his empowerment. I think if we think we can, we're in deep trouble. We're in deep trouble. But if we're willing to obey God's call, he will do what he did for Saul. He will give us a new heart. He will enable us to do the work. I think Saul certainly knew that he had very few qualifications for the kingship. He wasn't from a powerful or respected noble family. Even as he said to Samuel, I, I come from a no-account family in a no-account tribe. He didn't use the word no-account, but least in Israel. He was not descended from one of the Shofats, Shofatim. He was not a great warrior, oh, thou valiant warrior, like the angel said to uh, Gideon. He didn't say that to Saul. We have no evidence that Saul had ever been a warrior. He, he was not well-educated. He was not intellectually gifted. He had no experience in leadership. What qualification did he, did he have? Well, the only known qualifications 
were that he was taller than everybody else and that he was handsome. But certainly even Saul understood that he was going to need more than cosmetic attributes to successfully unite and lead a people as rebellious and motley as was Israel against very formidable foes. The Philistines were nothing to sneeze at. And they were surrounded by numerous other tribes. In fact, <laughs> we go on another chapter two and right away, bam, you know, they're, they're involved in battles with two um, pagan tribes that surround, nations that surrounded Israel. God changed Saul's heart. But when God changes a heart, he does not totally transform that person into another person. Oh yes, when we're born again, we are made a child of God, but God does not strip us of our human attributes. He does not strip us of our personality. He doesn't take away our, our character, our drives, who we are. That, that, that new birth within us has to grow up within the framework of who we are and our body, uh, who we are, has to adjust to the new birth and to the Spirit of God who dwells within us and to learn obedience. Learn obedience. That's one of the hardest things to do, to learn obedience. It's a lifelong thing. I was talking to a fellow last night who, it turned out, knew some of my wife's family from way back, and he, he serves here as a youth pastor in a church and also works in a, a youth ministry, uh, Ramey Vista Youth Ministry. And he was saying that when he got into a particular denomination, this particular denomination emphasized a particular event which transpired as being the epitome, the ultimate. You, you've arrived in your spiritual life when this thing happens to you. And he says, I'm still a minister in that denomination because I can't accept that. <laughs> He says, I, I, I believe that you walk with God through your whole life and, and your walk is one of growth. And there's no point at which you've reached a high point because of something that happens in your life, some event, even if it's supposed to be some spiritual encounter of some sort. It, it's, it's an ongoing process by which we are becoming saved in, in the ultimate sense of the word, work out our salvation with fear and trembling. And so this would be for Saul. Saul has been given a new heart, but this doesn't mean that this man has been made into a totally new person, you know, kind of robot, beep, 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 you know, goes around doing God's will all the time because we know very well he didn't. He didn't live that way. It's possible to disobey the Spirit of God who dwells within us. God gave him immediately the three confirmations. The Scripture says that on that day, the three prophecies that Samuel gave to Saul were fulfilled. Uh, the last clause of verse 9 subsumes the first two without explaining them or going into the details and saying it again. Only the third prophecy is described again uh, in this particular passage. And it says that when Saul and his servant came to uh, Gibeath HaElohim, or Giba as it's believed to have been, the town of Giba, where there was a Philistine garrison, that he did encounter this group of prophets as, Saul had pro as Samuel had prophesied, and that as he met them, the Spirit of God came down upon Saul, and he gave him the, pro the gift of ecstatic utterance, and he began to prophesy amongst them. Apparently, he traveled with the prophets back to his hometown. That seems to be what is being said here. He traveled with them back to his hometown because in verse 11, we read that the people who knew Saul saw him prophesying with the prophets, and they were flabbergasted. The tone of verses 11 and 12 is, from the tone, it's quite clear that, the, that his friends and the members of his family 
who had known Saul for a long time, were incredulous. This is Saul? What's happened to the guy? I mean, they knew him. <laughs> this isn't the kind of person Saul is. And so they ask these two questions. They say, what has happened to the son of Kish? <laughs> What's happened to this guy? We know him. We know his family. We know his heritage. We know his character. And this is totally out of character with Saul. Is Saul among the prophets? Question. Well, for the men of Gibeah who knew Saul, the answer was obviously no. <laughs> I mean, it was a rhetorical question here. Saul had never before shown any particular spiritual inclination. And so that's why they were dumbfounded. He's just been one of the guys. And for him to be with amongst the prophets, they couldn't figure out what had happened. What had happened to this guy? Well, you all know that when the Spirit of God comes upon us, we are transformed and we do become new creatures in Christ. And to the extent that Saul was obedient to the Spirit of God, he was in that process at that moment anyway. Well, we don't have time today, so we'll, we'll pick it up there and, and look at what happened to Saul and what God did through Samuel to actually prefer Saul before Israel as king.